Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Isn't that what Frosty the Snowman says when he puts his hat back on? No idea. It becomes animated. No, it's Happy Birthday. I haven't seen that in probably 15 years. <laughs> Happy Birthday. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 21, Visitors. And we will dive right in with Ronica getting notified by Raish that Delotrell and her older brother, Serwin, are at the door calling on the family, specifically for Malta. <laughs> yeah, it's... So it's another Malta chapter, but not from Malta's point of view, so... I guess that's nice, but we do have an exasperated Ronica trying to figure out what to do to clean up this mess that is Malta going around their back. Right. And specifically, they're there for Serwin to call upon Malta, as in like seeing her as a young woman kind of thing, because Ronica initially is like, oh, I'll see to the older brother in a bit, but they can play or whatever. Rach is like, no, there's... Something not proper <laughs> right. happening. Right. And I, the idea is that they came in and asked specifically for Malta, not Kefria or Ronica, which isn't how etiquette works, apparently. And it's weird that Sir Wynn is there for Malta anyway, because she is a child. And like, I guess... It's hard, right? Because he saw her dressed as a woman at a trader's ball, which means that she is of age, but she also didn't actually go into the trader's ball. So is she of age? And also she arranged it later in the market. Right. right. It's just this weird gray area of kids trying to be adults and none of them doing it well. (laughs) And Ronica here is pointing out or in her mind is thinking that The two women looked at one another, and in the face of this social dilemma, the lines blurred between mistress and servant. And it's kind of just like two women trying to figure out their way around this social situation. So she's like, yeah, bring refreshments. That's a good suggestion, Rach. You're correct. This is best handled with formality rather than scolding him like a rude boy, even if that is how he is behaved. So she takes charge of everything with Rachel's kind of advice there. And then after thoughts throws in, oh, yeah, and, and grab Kefria as well. And then wait a little bit and then grab Malta so she can see how this is handled. And Ronica is at the moment doing the ledgers and she sets those aside and she notes that she has yet to find any way to make the debts on the pages any smaller or the credits any larger. So this would at least be a distraction. So that's, you know, the dire straits of the Vestrant Fortune is still brought up to us readers. And we are still reminded of that, that yes, there is a debt looming. Right. And this is unpleasant as it is just a distraction from that. Right. And not only are the debts looming, but it's kind of getting very serious at this point. 
Um, I think we've known that the debts are bad, but the fact that she is spending all of her time here alone going over the ledgers is a clear indicator that things are really bad. Right. Yeah. So Ronica heads down and right as she's about to open up the door in her mind thinking, you know, he's the heir to a powerful trader family. I have to walk a thin line to not insult the family, but to dissuade this from happening. <laughs> Kefria rounds the corner, says, mother. Small glints of anger shone in her usually docile eyes. Her lips were set in a firm line. Rana could not recall having seen her daughter like this. She lifted a cautioning hand to her. The Trell family is not to be offended, she reminded her very quietly. She saw Kefria hear her words, evaluate them, and set them aside. Neither are the Vestrits, she hissed in a low voice. The inflection was so like her father that it paralyzed Ronica. Kefria pushed open the door and preceded her into the room. So they enter together to confront Sirwin and Dello. Obviously, Ronica has different thoughts about how she would handle things, but Kefria is very angry at her daughter and is taking charge right. at this point. Well, I think it's really interesting because Kefria brings up a really good point of like, you can't be so obsessed with image that you forget that you also have standing. So it was a good tactic, I think, for Kefria to point out that why would we care more about not offending them? Would they so clearly have offended us? Like, that's a dumb standard to set. And I agree with her on that. <laughs> um but it is really interesting, too, because there is this change in Kefria, who we know as a meek and mild person who kind of just goes with the flow and does whatever she wants. And here we have her the first time we've seen her in a while, and she's really taking charge of this moment. And there's not really a place in this where she ever seems not in control, at least while she is with the children around. She is very much in charge. She knows what she's doing and she is willing to step up and take control of this moment, which I think is not something that Ronica has ever seen from her daughter. And so it is very interesting to see the interaction play out with Ronica, who is kind of seeing her daughter in a new light. Right. Yeah. So Ronica, seeing that, also takes charge of the conversation before Kefria can outburst with anything because she's kind of scared of that, I guess. And right. says, you know, oh, it's so nice to see you. Uh, multiple join us in a, a moment. You know, what a pleasure to have you call on us, sir, when it's been, oh, let's see. Why do you know? I can't recall the last time you came to visit us. And he says, I believe my parents brought me to Kefria's wedding. Of course, that was some years back. About 15 years, Kefria observes. You were an inquisitive little boy, as I recall. Didn't I catch you trying to grab the goldfish in the garden fountains? The boy was still standing. Ronica tried to recall his age. 18? 19? I suppose you did. Yes, I do recall something of that. Of course, as you say, I was just a little boy. That you were, Kefria replied before Ronica could speak. And I would never blame a little child for seeing something bright and pretty and desiring to possess it. She smiles at Sirwin and says, oh, here are the race with the refreshments. Which it sets up the conversation and, and the future that this is going to take very nicely. Right. It's well done by Kefria. Yeah, I think it is really well done. And it does like put him in his place. It number one reminds him that 
what he's doing right now is inappropriate and not befitting of his age. And number two, isn't something that she's going to put up with. She does not approve. And she has made that very clear. And Serwin kind of gets the message. And I think what's really interesting about this is at the start of this, when Ronica and Kefria come into the room, we see Serwin at least looking kind of guilty. Like he clearly feels bad. I don't think he thought this through. And maybe if we're being generous, he thought that her, that Malta's mom and grandma were on the same page and knew he was coming around and are okay with this. But being rational, he probably knew that he shouldn't be here. And that's clear because the second he sees them, he looks guilty. And also notably, Dello is peering around them to try to figure out where Malta is. So clearly something has gone on behind Ronica and Kefria's knowing. Yeah. What do you think uh, Kefria was talking about when she said, I would never blame a little child for seeing something bright and pretty and desiring to possess it. Calling Serwin a, a little child and never wouldn't blame him to desire Malta seeing something bright and pretty or wouldn't blame Malta as the little child seeing something bright and pretty in Serwin. I'm trying to grasp it. I didn't see it that way necessarily. I th- saw it more as like when you were a kid doing this, I could overlook it. If you try it now as not a kid, I will not. Yeah, that's fair. So I guess neither, but kind of the more it's about Serwin than yeah. Malta. Yeah, that's fair. But I guess it could be about Malta. So Dello is kind of hoping Malta is going to appear here, but Kefria immediately returns to her attack, according to Ronica, and says directly, "What bring? What do you? Uh, what does bring you here today, Serwin?" And he meets her eyes boldly, but his voice was soft as he said, "Malta invited me, us." I had taken Dello into the market for an afternoon of shopping. We chanced to meet Malta, and we all took some refreshment together. And Malta extended to us an invitation to call on her at her home. She did. Kefria's tone did not question his story. Ronica hoped her dismay did not show as plainly as her daughter's. Well, the silly child never told us to expect you, but that is how girls are, I suppose, and Malta worse so than most. Her head is full of foolish fancies, I am afraid, and they crowd out all common sense and courtesy. Ronica half heard Kefria's word, words and was thinking that, well, was pondering how often Malta was slipping away to the market on her own, and if the meeting had truly been as chance as the trell, as uh, Sir Wintrell had made it sound. And pretty much the conclusion of that as this goes on is like, yep, they were in cahoots together. They planned it. But Dello looks more guilty. Yeah, definitely not. I don't think she thinks Serwin planned this. No, I, think I was talking Dello, about the two girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dello and Malta definitely had something to do with this. And I think it's really interesting that she's like, how often is she going away unsupervised? And yet she also takes care of the books. So she should be able to see every time Malta charges something, right? Although I guess I don't know when they get the bills from town right like does that happen once a month does that happen weekly i guess so i guess maybe she truly doesn't know and it's upticked recently but either way malta has been sneaking out and that Mm -hmm. is clear and kefria is making sure to remind serwin here in her words that she picks that she is a girl she has foolish fancies and she's a silly child so really reinforcing that she's not a young woman Right. This is inappropriate and it's very blunt and over the head <laughs> bludgeoning right. Serwin with it. And he gets it. 
And I mean, to be fair, she kind of has to be that way. He has accepted her as a woman and is bringing her in uh, or is taking her up on her offer to come visit her at her home. So clearly he does need to be hit over the head with the fact that she is a child. She is not fully a woman. She has not been presented as a woman by her family. Like, yeah, he saw her in women's clothing, but she was alone by herself. So he knows better or he should know better. Like she's not. She is just a child. She's not a woman. Right. And so Malta on cue comes into the room and Ronica gets a good look at her while she's assessing the situation. She says that a sly wariness came over her face, very ugly to Ronica's eye. When had the girl become capable of such deliberate waywardness? It was plain she had hoped to greet Dello and Sirwin on her own. At least she did not appear to have expected them today. Although her hair was freshly brushed and there was a touch of paint on her lips, her dress at least was appropriate to a girl of her age. She wore a simple woolen shift embroidered at the throat and hem. Yet there was something in the way she wore it, sashed tight to show her waist and pull the fabric firm against her rounding bosom, that suggested there was a woman in the child's clothes. And Sir Wintrell had risen to his feet as if it was a young woman entering rather than a little girl. This was worse than Ronica had feared. So this this whole situation and this whole chapter is kind of like coming to terms with, oh, so this is how things are now. <laughs> right. And it's kind of a rude awakening for especially Ronica, but uh, Kefria as well, I'm hoping. It's really interesting to me, though, because this isn't that long after she tried to sneak away and go present herself as a woman on her own. Like... The fact that she was able to pull this off is kind of shocking. Did they do nothing when she came back dressed as a woman with all the face paint on? You know, like, was there no punishment at all? She clearly still had access to her fund, her family funds and other, you know, just overall. It feels like it's too little too late to be like, oh, that's weird. When did she become so conniving? When literally a month, if not more ago, she was conniving enough to have an entire dress made, bought accessories, shoes, makeup, and go all the way down to the Trader's Ball. Like, this shouldn't be new information. This wasn't a (laughs) one-off. That's not something you just do on a whim. It took planning. And it's, like, frustrating that Ronica's like, huh, maybe she's conniving. Yeah, you think? (laughs) So uh, Kefria greets her and invites her to have coffees and cakes before she and Malta or she and Dello run off to play. And Dello kind of chimes in, offering her bargain, her excuse here for why Sirwin's also invited, saying, "And afterwards, perhaps you can show us the trumpet vine that you said was on the bud." She cleared her throat and spoke louder than was needed as she added to Kefria. Malta was telling us about your hothouse room when last we met. My brother is very interested in flowers. So that's probably the reason that they concocted between themselves that Sirwin would come over to visit. Right. Kind of masking things. And Kefria, of course, is smiling and like, oh, is he? Then he shall have a tour. I'm surprised Malta even remembers that we have that for how little she's there. I will show it to him myself. After all, she turned the smile on Sirwin. I can scarcely trust him alone with my goldfish after what he tried the last time. Ronica almost felt sorry for the boy as he forced a smile to his face and tried not to show his full understanding of her words. I am sure I would enjoy that very much, Kefria. 
Ronica had expected to take control of the situation, but in this area, at least, Kefria seemed to have finally assumed her full role. And Ronica says other than, you know, courtesies and kind of sitting back and listening, and she starts kind of thinking to herself about the situation. Right. And I think this goes to one of Ronica's flaws as a parent, and that is that she wants to take over at the faintest hint of something going wrong. She doesn't want her kids to do it themselves. She will do it and it will turn out better. And it's talked about a little bit more in depth, but I think this is a really good sign of like, oh, she's surprisingly doing well. And it's like, your daughter has three kids and is a fully grown adult woman. She should be able to handle a teenage boy fine. I don't know. It's just so strange that the way Ronica sees her daughter is not the way you would expect a mother to see her 30-something-year-old child. I assume that that is Kefria's age. I don't know. <laughs> I think so, yeah. But either way, it's, I don't know, it's just such a weird dynamic, and we'll talk about it more in depth whenever Kefria brings it up, but I thought this was a good place to highlight the hint of, oh, surprisingly, she's doing fine, so I guess I'll relax for now. And... And Ronica has some thoughts about the situation. She takes time then because she doesn't have to focus on the conversation to just assess what has happened. And that's where she determines, yeah, Malta and Dello concocted this together. But Dello looked far more uneasy and guilt-stricken. But Malta, if not at ease, at least looked determined, (laughs) continually determined for this. Sermon himself seemed well aware of the impropriety of the situation, but like a mouse fascinated by a snake, he could not seem to recover himself from it. He tried to remain focused on Kefria's stream of conversation, but Malta would address him directly, forcing him to answer directly back to her. And mentally, Ronica shakes her head. Kefria had worried that Malta was too naive to be brought into Bingtown society as a young woman, fearing that men might take advantage of her. The opposite was more likely true. Malta had watched Serwin with the avidity of a stalking cat. Deep in her heart, Ronica wondered which was more important to her, the man or the hunting of him. Serwin was young, and from what little Ronica had seen of him, inexperienced in games such as these. If Malta won him too easily, and he showed little sign of resisting her attentions, then Malta might discard him for more challenging conquests. Ronica was looking at her granddaughter with new eyes. What she saw there, she found no more admirable in a woman than in a man. A little predator she was. Ronica wondered if it were already too late to do anything about it. When had the pretty little girl metamorphosed into not a woman but a grasping, conquering female? She found herself thinking that perhaps it was just as well Kyle had drawn Wintrow back from the priesthood. If one of them must inherit the Vestret Trader legacy, she would rather it went to him than to Malta as she was now. So clearly, Malta is not the innocent little granddaughter that Veronica had assumed she was. It's really unclear how much Veronica has been a part of Malta's life as a child, as it stands. Like, we don't know. I mean, they live in the same house, but we don't know how much they interact. We don't know if Ronica ever spends time, like, spent time with the grandchildren when they were younger and the past couple of years with her husband being sick has thrown that off. Like what it has been to change Malta from the seemingly innocent person in her eyes to a fully conniving, basically grown adult. It's, I mean, 
it's a really interesting thing to think about. I wonder too, if it goes back to these traditions that the Bangtown traders seem to have that children are kind of there for just passing on the name, you know, like I kind of get the feeling that in this society, children are better seen than heard. And so maybe it's just with these rich old trader families, it's more normal for the kids to be sent off with nannies than to like really have an active role in their lives. But it's really interesting then to turn around and be like, Oh no, is it too late to fix her? Because they probably should have been like thinking about this before now you would think. Yeah. But also she's the grandmother, right? Yeah, I suppose. So, but she does have that kind of epiphany about Selden too. Like, I don't really know him. Where is he right now? Probably off with his tutor, but like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. And I think it's interesting too, that when Ronica is admonishing how Malta is acting, she makes sure to point out that it's not just because she's a woman chasing after men so vivaciously, but because she would dislike that trait in a man as well that like it's gross to prey after people just for the hunt but Malta has kind of said that's her goal right like that's why should she just settle on one person how do you know that one person is a good husband fit like you should be able to try out as many as you want until you figure it out and but also that's that's also not I don't think what Ronica is even hinting at at least looking at it from a you know 21st century perspective like you can still you know date around and like try different guys or whatever in Malta's words but what Ronica is describing is literally just going after the hunt and like liking that chase not even getting to know the person really and just moving on if that prey falls too easily it's not even like trying to date around or trying to trying different guys it's literally just how can I make you do stuff Right. Which is what I see is like the, the really gross part that Ronica is talking about. Right. No, no, I agree. I'm, I was trying more to say like it's still in the vein of what Martha right. has said that she wants. Yeah. So she, Ronica, thinks more on Wintro because she's like, well, Malta's not it right now. <laughs> Which is also like, I don't know. It's so annoying And I can see how growing up as her being your mother, being Althea would be really annoying in that like, well, at least one of my daughters. okay, so I guess I can give up like one kid seemed pretty decent from the five minutes I knew him. So I guess I'll hand everything over to him instead of this brat who's really annoying me right now, Malta. And it's like, did you learn nothing? You don't even know intro. What if he's horrible? Like we know he's not and we know he would be a good fit. But like. She doesn't know that. She knows Wintro even less than she knows Malta, and it doesn't really seem like she knows Malta. So, <laughs> so it's just like weird that like she's not learning from this experience of like, oh, maybe I should get to know people more and figure out what their motives are and who they are as a person before I like think about future long term plans. And instead, she's like, well, that one doesn't work right now, so I guess I'm dropping that and going to another one. And like. I don't know. Like, does Ronica just not dig into people? She just like first impressions. That's it. Cause she also wasn't good at sussing out that Kyle's trash. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, but her thoughts do turn to Kyle as well here. Right. A little bit, not much, but a little bit. Basically her saying that she wanted to punish 
Kefria for not standing up to Kyle and all the decisions that he's making. And she wanted to force Kefria to confront every bit of the pain that the man had managed to cause in a few short months since Efren had died. Wintrow had been virtually kidnapped and forced into slavery on his own family ship. Saw only knew what had become of Althea. Sometimes that was the hardest for Ronica to lie awake at night and wonder endlessly what had become of her wayward daughter. So she's thinking of like Wintrow here is basically kidnapped because they got a letter from Barandal from the monastery asking, when is Wintrow going to come back? Right. And now Althea was pushed away as well. And she has no idea if Althea is dead or alive. And if she's alive, she's probably not in Bingtown. But if she was, Bingtown's not nice anymore. Like it's not as safe as it was in the past. So where and how is Althea? She's just kind of terrified of everything that has happened recently and doesn't look on it with the greatest outlook. But in her head right here, she's like, I wanted to make Kefria confront all the pain that Kyle has caused. This was also your plan, Ronica. Like right. this, it's not, you're not faultless in this. Yeah. There's no ownership of her own wrongdoing in this. She's the one who made this plan and decided that Kyle needed to be in charge of everything. She gave it all to him. She convinced her husband to sign away the rights, oh, take them away from Althea and give them to Kefria, who they knew would give them to Kyle. Like, it's just so weird for her to be all high and mighty and then also, like, completely not think about her own shortcomings. Like she wants Kefria to suffer. That's her kid. She should want to be helping her because I'm sure Kefria has suffered enough. Like she should know Kefria is probably also feeling the suffrage. And it's not fair that because it's affecting her, that means it needs to be everybody else's problem. She does say that there were times that, that Ronica wanted no, yeah. Kefria to face. It's not like but she like, does want her to suffer. No, but the fact that, I mean, and I guess she's human. Like, obviously, you can't control an urge to be like, oh, I wish they would suffer, even if you know in your heart that's not right or that you would not actually want that. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't know. It just feels very, like, it's her fault, not mine. Right. <laughs> and it's annoying. And her thoughts kind of in this this inner diatribe here, she kind of moves on from, well, yeah, Althea might be dead or in this unsafe Bingtown, moves to Bingtown itself and the society there and how the newcomers are coming in with different vices and different attitudes of how they treat servants. And maybe, you know, they're mostly men and maybe they don't have women in their households, but if they do, the line is really blurred as to whether they're servants or not. And it's, and the servants are only nominally different from slaves, she says, as well. And Ronica's like, thinking about all of this. And this is the attitude that we've seen before. We've seen her talk about this before. Uh, even brought it up to Efren a little bit about how, you know, the slaves are not a good idea, blah, blah, blah. The whole thing about society and Bingtown and how that's changing. And she thinks on it more here of, like... That's not just the whole picture, but it goes down to the small things in life, too, because she had seen somebody strike a servant in the market, which she says isn't really different or isn't abnormal, really, in Bingtown. But if you're a, 
a well-to-do person who has her servants and you strike them, then you know that those servants are going to lie, steal from you, demand not be in service of you or like demand respect in some sort. But what terrified her about those interactions is that the servant just cowered and like shrank away and took it basically. And I'm saying servant because Ronica does, because she also goes into a whole thing of like, they're basically slaves, but like that's illegal. But also where's the proof when they themselves will say, no, 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 no. they pay me. They pay me. I'm, I'm a servant. And she's like shuddering at what kind of threats they're under. And it's just a horrible situation that she paints there. And we've gotten the whole big picture of it, how it's really bad for, you know, undercutting costs and things like that. And it's just a gross practice. But here we see a little look into a day-to-day interaction and how that's changing mindsets around Bingtown as well and how the whole town is kind of being brought down to that level. Right. And the reason it's kind of seeping in is just in that the fact where when a servant is hit now in the market and they cower away, they are not standing up and saying this is unjust. They're not defending themselves. They're not taking pride in that they deserve not to be treated that way. No one else is either. And that makes it easier for no one else to do that. So in she said in in them not standing up for themselves, it kind of makes people feel like, well, maybe they deserved it because typically people say, that's not fair. I didn't deserve it. And with them not doing that and because of the way their society is typically ran, then they they don't know. Like, do we defend this person? Did they deserve to be hit? Or maybe they are being sneaky or sly or something went wrong. And then the more that you're seeing of that, the more that you're kind of just accepting that there's a lower class of people who deserve to be hit if they do something mildly inconvenient. And it's just like a slow wearing away of people's morals. But even in that, you see Ronica kind of blaming the the slave slash servants themselves and saying, you and know, the newcomers. Like, yeah, the newcomers, <laughs> but like saying like, well, they're not standing up for themselves. So how are we supposed to? And it kind of feels like one of those things. It's like if you saw somebody get hit in a marketplace, maybe just say, hey, don't do that. Like, why do you need that person to be their own savior? Why can't you save them? But it goes, again, to this weird mindset of the Bingtown people of, like, you have to be strong and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and weakness isn't allowed, (laughs) essentially. And, like, I don't know. It's just really, really weird and definitely a changing time that is something that their old culture kind of lent into turning into this new, more tolerant of slaves culture. (laughs) Right. And like you said, I mean, where is the proof? Sure, it's illegal, but if you ask them and they say they're not, and of course they don't have money because they send it home, like, what do you do? How, How do you stop that from happening? Like, what is happening behind the scenes, Ronica asks, to make them so afraid of telling the truth and getting out of that situation that they stay in it? Because it's clearly not a good one. And while she's zoning out, thinking about all of this, abruptly, she gets a good day, Ronica Vestrit. Ronica does not startle. She has more poise than that. But Serwin's in front of her, you know, bidding her farewell. And she says, good day. I hope you enjoy our garden room. And if you enjoy the trumpet vine, perhaps Kefria can give you a cutting from it. As harsh as it may seem, we cut ours back quite severely to encourage it to bloom and to have a graceful shape. I see, he said, 
and she was sure that he did. He thanked her and then followed Kefria from the room. Malta and Dello, heads together, followed them. Malta's pent frustration showed in her flared nostrils and flat lips. Clearly, she had expected to get Serwin alone, or at least in no more than the company of his sister. To what end? Probably the girl herself did not know. Perhaps that was the most frightening thing about all this, that Malta had flung herself into it so aggressively with so little knowledge of the consequences. And whose fault was that, Ronica was forced to ask herself as she watched them go. The children had been growing up in her household. She had seen them often, at table, underfoot, in the gardens, and yet they had been, always, the children. Not tomorrow's adults, not small people growing towards what they must be someday, but the children. Selden. Where was Selden at this moment? What was he doing? Probably with Nana, probably with his tutor, supervised and secure, but that was all she knew of him. A moment of panic washed over her. There was so little time, it might not, it might even now be too late to shape them. Look at her own daughters. Kefria, who only wanted someone to tell her what to do, and Althea, who only desired that she do her own will always. And she was thinking more of the debts and the numbers in her ledgers, thinking of the debt she owed the Festrus of the Rainwilds, saying, Blood or gold, the debt was owed. In a sudden wrenching of her perceptions, it was not her problem. It was Selden's, and it was Malta's, for were not they the blood that might pay the debt? And she had taught them nothing. Nothing. Rach asks if she's all right. And Ronica lifts her eyes to her, thinking, this woman, a servant slave in her own house, entrusted with the teaching of her granddaughter, a woman she hardly knew at all. What did her mere presence in the household teach Malta? That slavery was to be accepted? Was that the shape of things to come? What did that say to Malta about what it meant to be a woman in the Bingtown society to come? Sit down, she heard herself say to Rach. We need to talk about my granddaughter and about yourself. So this is a the the come to Jesus moment for Ronica a little bit. Right. Not a lot, but a little bit of realizing that, yeah, she she hasn't been doing anything, any raising of people. She's just been running the household, worried about debt, worried how she's going to fix things when that's a household problem and they need to understand what Ronica is trying to do. <laughs> right. By staying out of all the family affairs, she is really kind of put on the back burner thinking about what her decisions may mean to them. Just like the decision to allow people to treat their quote, servants, maybe slaves, the way that they do in public and having that slowly become accepted, her little actions are creating an environment where little things are accepted now that probably would never have been if she had thought about it first. Right. And she's finally starting to think about the consequence of Rach and their relationship and what that means for Malta, which we have already seen Malta views Rachel or Rach as... As a slave. As a slave, as under beneath her and as somebody to make fun of and to use. And I don't know if it's going to be easy to get that out of her mind. You know, like this is not a small undertaking that Ronica is realizing that she needs to do. Right. And also she's kind of realizing that she can't be the one to do it alone. There's definitely some interesting thought spirals going on here. It's kind of weird 
this part of the chapter, I feel, because it's so introspective and yet there is supposed to be something happening in the background. It's very like old woman gets lost in the thoughts sort of, <laughs> right. sort of vibe. But I don't know. It's just so interesting that she is starting to think. And I do appreciate that she's kind of starting to take an action. She's talking to Rach. She is trying to figure out what the best way to fix this is. Like she hasn't just given up. She's not saying, well, too late. I guess this is just how life is now. She's like, okay, so what can I do to hope it's not too late? Yep. And she wants to get to know Rach as a woman herself and not just the servant slave she has in the house. Right. Step in the right direction. And we will revisit the situation at the end of the chapter. But for now, we move on to Wintro. And Vivacia specifically. It's Vivacia's point of view. But the Wintro section where they have reached Jamalia Harbor. And once again, we have Wintro with Vivacia during their hour, their, des- their designated slot together. Right. And he is napping. Vivacia wakes him by whispering Jamalia, which makes him feel a little embarrassed. He feels bad for sleeping on her deck. And she's clearly getting more and more melancholy as time is going on because she responds that um, that he shouldn't be sorry, that if she had the chance to be able to escape the day's troubles, she would also do that. And it's just so grown up and sad, I guess. Right. <laughs> of a response from Vivacia, who I think when we first knew her was so bright and curious and full of life. And now it's just like, yeah, I wish I could sleep to get away from all this mess. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel so sorry for her. She does try to cheer Wintro up here and say, you know, I also wanted to wake you up to show you this view because your grandfather always said this was the prettiest view of the city out here where you cannot see any of its faults. There they are, the white spires of Jamalia. And we get a description of Jamalia itself and how it is gorgeous. It's a capital city that gave its whole name to the satrapy. White spires are soaring higher than any tree. So intensely white were they that Wintro could not look at them without squinting. Spires were banded with gold and the foundations of the buildings were rich green marble. So it it is a, a gorgeous city to see from the harbor. Light is reflecting off all of these white spires and this architecture is gorgeous. And this is the center of where Saw is worshipped as well. So he's all kind of like reveling in the history of all these architects that got together after the place was you know, destroyed the first time. And it was built back of stone, so it was never going to be destroyed again. And... It was destroyed by a fire and it's not made clear if that was like enemy fire that somebody was trying to destroy the city or if it was an accidental fire, but it is really, most of it had burned to the ground. It says, right. And it was about 500 years ago, which Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's really interesting to know that little tidbit of history about this town city (laughs) points out that there's Two extremely high spires. One is the shorter one, and that is the residence of the satrap. And the only higher spire than that, the only taller one, is the temple to Saw itself, where the satrap and his companions worshipped. To be sent to dwell in the monastery that served that temple was the highest honor to which a priest could aspire. 
The library alone filled 17 chambers, and there were three scribing chambers where 20 priests were constantly employed in renewing or copying the scrolls and books. Wintrow thought of the amassed learning there, and awe filled him. Then bitterness came to darken his soul. So, too, had Cress seemed fair and bright. But it had still been a city of greedy, grasping men. He turns his back and says, It's all a trick. All a rotten trick men play on themselves. They get together and they create this beautiful thing, and then they stand back and say, See, we have souls and insight and holiness and joy. We put it all in this building, so we don't have to bother with it in our everyday lives. We can live as stupidly and brutally as we wish and stamp down any inclination to spirituality or mysticism that we see in our neighbors or ourselves. Having set it in stone, we don't have to bother with it anymore. It's a trick men play on themselves, just one more way we cheat ourselves. So we also see that mirrored attitude in Wintrow here. He's melancholy, he's cynical, and he's still at odds with himself. Right. Clearly, Cress has affected him in a way that is different to how he was before. That this was a place where he was excited, where he thought his innocence was enough to protect him, and it wasn't. And now he can't look at other beautiful things and just see the beauty. He has kind of been robbed of that. He is just thinking about how it just proves even further how horrible men are. And Vivacia has to add to that, and they have a little bit of a conversation here. Basically, she's asking, you know, perhaps men are a trick that Saw played on this world. All other things I shall make vast and beautiful and true to themselves, perhaps, he said. Men alone shall be capable of being petty and vicious and self-destructive. And for my cruelest trick of all, I shall put among them men capable of seeing these things in themselves. Do you suppose that is what Saw did? That is blasphemy, Wintrow said fervently. Is it? Then how do you explain it? All the ugliness and viciousness that is the providence of human humanity. Whence comes it? So they have this conversation and, and we see again some of the melancholy and cynicism that is in Vivacia now. Both of them have a kind of everything is doom and gloom attitude right now. Although Wintrow, this is his topic of expertise. This is where he can come back to himself a little bit. So do you think that was Vivacia being doom and gloom? Or do you think that's her using what she knows about Wintrow to get him out of the slump? I think a little bit of both. I think she is feeling that through Wintrow's attitudes of like, all these men do or trick each other and be mean and stuff. And I think that's truly kind of absorbed into her. But I also think she knows that it is the right question to get Wintrow lecturing on a topic that he knows, basically saying that, no, not from Saw. That's from ignorance of Saw. You know, we took children into the monastery all the time and they may be angry from leaving their homes, but after a week, that spark of Saw bloomed in them. And not all of them were due were accustomed or built for a life of service. So some of them were sent back, but all of the children were able to bloom in that. So it's not from saw, it's just from ignorance of that beauty. All of them are suited to being creations of light and thought and love. All of them. And of course, Vivacia then replies, it's good to hear yourself again, Wintro. So I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think 
she is a little bit cynical of men's attitudes. And I use men as humanities attitudes at this point. Right. And it gets worse as it goes on until a snapping point where she's able to be courted by Kenneth later on. Right. But I also think she's just trying to cheer Winter up. Like both. Yeah. Yeah, I think she knows that this is a thing to say that like all she has to do is kind of vaguely talk trash about Saw and his <laughs> in a question way so he can answer. <laughs> exactly. And then his righteousness will flare back up. Um, but it is also a little bit funny that like she's like, ah, oh, I missed hearing the real you. And the real him is just him going on about how amazing Saw is. <laughs> <laughs> and Wintro kind of smiles bitterly and says, do I pity myself that much? And is it so obvious to all? Vivesha, of course, is more sensitive to who he is and says so, but also says that it is still nice to jolt you out of it now and then. Then asks, will you be going ashore, do you think? I doubt it, Wintro tried to keep the sulkiness from his voice. I haven't touched shore since I, quote, shamed my father in Cress. I know, but Wintro, if you do go ashore, be careful of yourself. Why? I don't know exactly. I think it is what your great-great-grandmother would have called a premonition. Vivacia sounded so unlike herself that Wintro stood up and peered over the bow railing at her. She was looking up at him. Every time he thought he had become accustomed to her, there would be a moment like this. The light was unusually clear today, what Wintro always thought of as an artist's light. Perhaps that accounted for how luminous she appeared to him. The green of her eyes, the rich gloss of her ebony hair, even her fine-grained skin shone with the best aspects of both polished wood and healthy flesh. She flushed pink to have him stare at her so, and in response to that, he felt again the sudden collision of his love for her and his total benightedness as to what she truly was. It rocked him as it always did. How could he feel this passion, if he dared to use that word, for a creation of wooden magic. His love had no logical roots he could find. There was no prospect of marriage and children to share, no hunger for physical satiation in one another. There was no long history of shared experiences to account for the warmth and intimacy he felt with her. It made no sense. Is it so important to you? She asked him in a whisper. So before we move on to his response to that and their further conversation, I do want to stop and a little talk about that section. First, we have a premonition from Vivesha. Don't go ashore or be careful if you do go ashore. Something's off. Right. And she's right. <laughs> he becomes a slave. <laughs> yeah. So this moment made me think of mini Kennet or charm Kennet because the charm of Kennet also seems to kind of know what's going on with no way to explain it. Like he's always cautioning Kenneth about things or making comments about how things are like that was lucky. Yeah. It just, I don't know if it's a thing that is like, like, I don't know if Wizardwood has the ability to see the future or like feel the future or whatever. But it seems like they have some way of, like, feeling when things are not good. Right. Yeah, I don't know. 
it's hard to explain. And I, I don't even know where to start with it, to be honest. Right. And then, I mean, I guess my theory is that, so we know that some dragons can see into the future, right? We have like the prophet dragons, basically. More, or like, they serpents, see, they, more like they see into the past. Like they see, they, they view the memories basically, right? Like the really old ones. I mean, yes, definitely. But how did Murkor know it was time to move then after all that time if he can't somehow see the future a little bit too? And they use the one that is trapped on other island. They use that one's like saliva or whatever goo to, <laughs> to see the future for other people, right? Right, yeah. So like... I don't is it an ability dragons have that is somehow transferred over into the spit that made up the wood? Like, I don't know. So I'm wondering if it has something more to do with that than anything else, or maybe not. Maybe it's just a random, like the waters felt weird and it happened to be right. I you know, I don't know. Yeah, I hard to tell. But very it is hard to tell. Yeah, but it is an interesting thought to have. Mm-hmm. A potentially privation <laughs> can tell the future. And then we have Wintro being astounded at this moment and just kind of staring at Vivacia and being in love with her and feeling that love, but then also logically knowing, like, I don't love you. I like you. I don't know where this feeling is coming from. Right. And being very wary and weird about it, which Vivacia does feel. Yeah, it's so interesting because... Again, I think this goes back to dragons and what dragons are because we have that sense of he's filled with awe at her beauty and she's blushing at him basically praising her in his mind. And then there's that sense of like love and companionship that I feel like people felt to the dragons with the dragon glamour. And I don't know if it's something that vivacia can control or if it's something that just happens or if that even has anything to do with this weird connection between them but clearly something is happening to force their uh, this connection on like a supernatural level right i mean they also do have the blood connection right they're connected multiple times not only from wintrow's blood itself soaking in but also his familial connections right and you know maybe that's something that happens when you share your being with another person. Maybe the reason that he feels so close to her is because she was with him or I guess he was with her in her consciousness area. And like, maybe that intermingling is just a closeness that happens once you do that. I don't know. Hard to say, but she does feel his reaction against that emotion, right? That thought of like, Oh, this is unnatural. And she's like, is that abhorrent to you? Like, Is this connection so bad? And again, it goes back to another conversation that they've had before and another talk that we've had about this topic where Wintro is kind of explaining, like, it's not you. It's that the feeling is so unnatural. It's like something imposed on me rather than something I truly feel, like a magic spell. And he goes into a little bit of magic talk here which is really interesting to me the followers of saw did not deny the reality of magic Wintro had even seen it done on rare occasions small spells to cleanse a wound or spark a fire 
But those were acts of a trained will coupled with a gift to have a physical effect. This sudden rush of emotion, triggered as much as he could determine solely by prolonged association, seemed to him entirely something entirely else. So couple like one sentence description of having seen magic done of very trained individuals a trained will with a certain talent sounds like skill to me ish but starting a fire yeah i don't think though i mean maybe i guess i guess none of the people that we know are super trained in it right and it could be a cultural way that they're training differently and we don't know yeah, I mean, cleanse the wound, yeah. That's obvious, like, skills can do that. Yeah. But, I don't I, know. Maybe, I mean, no, because I feel like skill has to do with a physical person. So I was going to say, maybe you could, like, will fire into being, but that feels like that's on a living hurt. Like, it seems to be skill has to be used on humans, Right. Or I guess, I don't know, it works on, yeah. kind of works on the fool and, and they, he's not They human. build toys, they build roads, they build buildings that all have skill imbued into them. I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. I don't know. So it could be skill, especially cleansing a wound like leans that way for me, but there's other magic too. That's true. There's a circle of magic that we don't know anything about. It could be hedge magic. Yeah. Or as somebody has written in before that they don't agree with the circle and think it's more like a sphere of things that we haven't seen before and <laughs> things could get closer together. It's more connected that way. So, yeah. Yeah. Could be hedge magic. True. So he goes into it saying that he likes the vivacia. He knows that and it makes sense to him. Logically, he thinks through the steps like, yep, we spent a lot of time together. We have similar, you know, thoughts, whatever. She has intelligence. Watching her use that intelligence as she builds chains of thought was a pleasure. She was an untrained acolyte, basically open and willing to any teaching who would not like such a being. Logic told him he should like the ship, and he did. But that was separate from the wave of almost painful emotion that would sweep through him at odd moments like this. He would perceive her as more important than home and family, more important than his life at the monastery. At such moments, he could imagine no better end to his life than to fling himself flat upon her decks and be absorbed into her. But no, the goal of a life lived well was to become one with Sa. So that last part there lends a little bit of credence, I think, to your theory about the glamour. Right. But it is a very specialized perversion of that ability right because live ships are definitely not intended (laughs) so that connection seems to only work with those who they have bonded with and that's like a mutual almost a mutual bonding because you can forcibly separate themselves like althea and vivacia had to sever that over time but it's it's so compelling to me and so compelling to wintro that often or sometimes that wave of emotion goes through him and like nothing more would be better than to live out the rest of my days and then be absorbed by you. I don't care about family or home or saw or anything. Right. It's so weird. Yeah. And it's okay. The ship thing is weird too. Thinking about it dragon wise, because we know that spoiler alert in the next series with 
the dragons. I guess I don't know if it's the final Fitz trilogy or the final Rainwild Chronicles, but I know that if they use enough silver, they can change it's the final final trilogy. Okay, yeah. So they can change the boats into dragons with enough silver. But that also is weird to me because technically that's just the cocoon that wrapped a baby serpent slash dragon in it. It wasn't like that body is gone, but it somehow still can turn into a dragon. I don't, the whole thing is so weird. It's so hard. Well, because dragons themselves, this is at least these have been my thoughts about that because I've thought about why that happens before. Right. <laughs> I'll probably have different thoughts when we get there, but as of right now, it feels like to me that dragons, yes, have physical bodies, but they're mostly just made out of memories and like silver. That's like their whole being. They're like, yeah, they're different. They're creatures of magic. And that's right. where we postulate that all magic comes from. Right? right. At least skill and the wit. And it's, it's so, if you think of them just like that, of just like, at their core being just memories and some of this magic planking or like it, it's basically silver rich silt that they right. spun cocoons out of and other spit from dragons. That's the planking. That's the magic wood. I guess it's parts of other dragons and memories and enough magic poured onto them will give that bank of memories life because they've already built an identity. So they kind of hold that, yes, I am a being, I have this. When they realize that they're also dragons, they kind of meld those two together. And we're like, yep, we're a dragon trapped in this ship. Give us magic to give our shape back. And our memories themselves will remember what our body was like, which is what kind of happens with skill healing. Basically, you're reverting the, the body back to what it remembers as there, being yeah. whole. So that's kind of my thoughts right now, at least. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense if you think of them as like just creatures. Right. <laughs> but if it's, you think of it as like their expressions of memory magic kind of works better. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I guess I was thinking like caterpillars completely liquefy in a cocoon to become a butterfly. Right. And like maybe that's what happens. But then I remember that there's specific mention that like bodies of the dragon, the like half formed dragons are in the cocoons so like there was a physical body it wasn't like they had no idea it, i don't know just it's weird weird but anyway we're going off on a tangent and the main purpose is we're not really sure and neither is wintro or vivacia why they are so drawn together but for whatever reason they are and vivacia points out that wintro's fear probably stems from the fact that he's afraid that she's going to take the place of saw in his heart and he almost agrees fully with that. At the same time, I do not think it is something that you as Vivacia impose upon me. I think it has to do with what a live ship is. If anyone can sign me to this, it is my own family. My great-great-grandmother when she saw fit to commission the building of a live ship. You and I, we are like buds grafted onto a tree. We can grow true to ourselves, but only so much as our roots will allow us. And he stands up, stretches, and we kind of reflect a little bit on how his body is changing. Moves on from that conversation slightly of how his muscles are hardening. He maybe has not grown any taller, but he's gotten leaner. He's become more like a man, I guess. 
and maybe closer, this is in his, like maybe closer to what uh, would suit his father. But when he got over his fever from getting his finger chopped off, he was called to his father's cabin. And that was not to tell him that he was pleased with Wintrow's bravery or even ask how he was. Not even to say he didn't notice improved skills as a seaman. No, only to tell him how stupid he had been that he had had the chance in Crest to win the crew's approval and be seen as truly a part of them, and he had let it go by. It was a sham, he'd told his father. The whole setup with the bear and the man who won were just a lure. I knew that right away. I know that, his father had declared impatiently. That's not the point. You didn't have to win, you idiot. Only to show them that you have spunk. You thought to prove your courage by standing silent while Gantry cut off your finger. I know you did. Don't deny it. Instead, you only showed yourself as some sort of religious freak. When they expected guts, you showed yourself a coward. And when any man would have cried out and cursed, you behaved like a fanatic. At the rate you're going, you'll never win this crew. You'll never be a part of them, let alone a leader they respect. Oh, they may pretend to accept you, but it won't be real. They'll just be waiting for you to let your guard down so they can really put it to you. And you know something? That's what you've earned from them. And damn me if I don't hope you get it. His father's words still echoed through him. And he thinks that, you know, in the long days that had passed, yeah, he did feel a grudging respect from the crew. And mild as swift to forgive as he was to take offense, had been most quick to resume a tolerant attitude towards him. But Wintrow could no longer relax and accept it. His father had poisoned his attitude toward the other crew members. His father did not wish to see them accept him, therefore he would see to it however he could that Wintrow remained an outcast. And because of that, he told himself that as he painstakingly traced the convoluted logic of such insanity, that was why he could, ne- he could never trust completely the crew's acceptance and friendship. Because if he did, his father would find some way to turn them against him. So he's, he feels an acceptance towards the crew for what he did. But with his father's words kind of worming their way into his head saying like, no, they're just faking it. He knows in his heart that, yeah, even though this crew may be genuinely accepting me, I literally cannot be welcomed into that and I have to hold myself aloof because if I go into there, my father's just going to find some other way to ostracize me. Right. Which is so sad. And it's clear that Kyle had to steam for a little bit to figure out a way to make this not a win for Wintrow. Right. And he decided that instead of accepting that, like, maybe he isn't the best father and he made a lot of mistakes, he decides it's all Wintrow's fault and that... Obviously, even if he would have lost, they would have respected him more. And like, then if he would have cried when his finger got cut off, they would have respected him again. And now he's just some religious freak. And it's like, no, Kyle, that's what you see. Like, if he would have fought and lost, people still would have been mad because they were upset that they got swindled. Like, there still would have been crap talking from the other crews. That was a no-win situation. And on top of that... If he would have cried when they chopped off his finger, that would have just doubled down on their thing of him being a coward. And Kyle should know that. And it's so sad. He probably does know that. Yeah. And it just, he doesn't care because it happened. And now he's like, well, well he has better. To f- yeah. He has to find some way to turn it to his advantage. Right. Keep Wintrow on the back heel. 
Right. And it's just so sad because like, that's your kid. Wintrow's like 14 at most. And you're trying to tear him down. Like for what? You're already the captain. Like, I don't, it's just so heartbreaking. Also the whole, like, they'll never accept you as a leader. It's like, okay, well your son doesn't want that anyway. So I don't think that's the insult you think it is. Like, <laughs> like good. Great. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. You can go back to the monastery. Nobody will care. But I don't know. I just feel bad because then Wintrow has to suffer with not having friends, basically. And he is finally kind of reaching that snapping point, saying every day it becomes harder for me to know who I am. My father plants down suspicions in me. The coarseness of life aboard the ship accustoms me to casual cruelty amongst my fellows. And even you, even the hours I spend with you are shaping me, carrying me away from my priesthood towards something else, something I don't think I want to be. These words were hard for him to speak. They hurt him as much as they hurt her. That was the only thing that let her keep silent. I don't think I can stand it much longer, he warned her. Something will have to give way, and I fear it will be me. He met her eyes unflinchingly. I've just been living from day to day, waiting for something or someone else to change the situation. I think I need to make a real decision. I believe I need to take action on my own. And Vivacia, of course, is thinking, what was he hinting he might do? What could the boy do against his father's dominance? And then he's called away. Hey, Wintrow, lend a hand and... He springs to obey, watching him scamper up the rigging with familiar ease, and she kind of thinks a little bit more on that. But Wintro is at a snapping point, and he's decided, like, I need to make a decision to do something right right after. Vivacia's like, hey, be careful in Javalia if you go ashore. Things are weird. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely sad. I mean... It is a lot to endure at his age and especially because he is there against his will and there's weird magic going on and nobody likes him. And now he can't trust even if they do seem like they like him. It's just a lot. And Vaivesha talks about how she understands where he's coming from and she knows that he does feel love towards her, but she also knows that he's a lot stronger than he thinks he is. That like, yeah. he says something's going to break, but he has it in him to withstand it. And if he could find joy in this occupation, he'd probably be really good at it. Like, it's really unfortunate that Kyle has made this into a thing that he doesn't want because I think there could have been a life where he would have been happy here. Yeah, for sure. And And she says the moment that he was on board the first time, she knew that, he and her were destined to be together, linked as uh, as bonded partners on on board, and that it would only take time, you know? Eventually they would be whole to both of them. But he had struggled long against that idea, and even in his defiant words today, she sensed a pending resolution to that struggle. Her patience would be rewarded. So she still is holding out hope and will and does think that eventually things will work out well, we'll find balance. And we'll live in harmony. Right. And then she goes on to 
look at the view that Wintrow had been looking at, and she says that he is right, that there is clearly flaws and it's not as great as it seems, but she would never tell him that because he doesn't need any help being gloomy right now. Yeah. She kind of goes into what she does and does not recall uh, through Efren's eyes and memory. Basically, Efren was focused on the beauty of the architecture and the spires above and the merchants and things that he had to deal with below never really focused on the sewers running into the harbor or, you know, anything bad <laughs> about Jamalia. So she is only sensing what she can right now and not through the memories. She also talks about how he couldn't have smelt with every pore of his hull the underlying stench of serpents. Yep. And I think that's really interesting because then it goes back again to do live ships have the ability to feel and or use senses? Like the five senses, six senses? Five senses? Five. Yeah. Uh, but we, we've talked about the temperature thing too, though. Because right. they have felt, you know, this is warmer waters, this is colder, they can know where they're going. There's that one ship who... They obviously see. Yeah, the one <laughs> ship who prefers to sail in the south. And yeah. Hate, it goes slow in the cold or whatever. Yep. So, yeah, it's just... She can feel with her hull, or smell with her hull... Right. The evil creatures, as she calls them, the serpents. And her eyes kind of swing to the south towards all the slavers and the stench of the serpents out from there and death and rot and all that sort of stuff and shudders that once she gets cargo on, she's going to be docked up with them. And she's shivering at that. Yeah. The thought shivering of the serpents. At, yeah. Shivering at serpents and slaves a little bit, but right. mostly the serpents calling them evil. Yeah. It's definitely something that she's not looking forward to, which I mean, who would, but I don't know. It, there's so many questions that I think this chapter, this section of this chapter brings up to me about how dragons and live ships work. But I guess that is how most of these chapters make me feel. So it's not a new feeling. And as we promised near the beginning, we are circling back around to Ronica and the Malta issue, and, issue. Yes. in the Malta situation. So we have Veronica in Efren's study kind of remarking that this was Efren's room and this is where she went to think when she was perplexed about a situation. But slowly, slowly, she had taken it over as her own study, moving some of her own you know, papers and trinkets and things in. But always the bones were going to be Efren's. The desk was too big. The chair was too big. There was trinkets and things from his journeys around as like a vertebrae was the footstool of right. some like sea creature, you know, that was sun bleached, which cool. Gross. <laughs> I wouldn't want to sit on a vertebrae. Maybe. Okay. I if I had a cool. dinosaur vertebrae stool, maybe. Yeah. That seems kind of sick. Sea washed vertebra from some immense sea creature. Could be like, could be a whale. It could be like a serpent. You okay. Know? Hear me out. Do you think this is like the size of no, it wouldn't have wouldn't be. Never mind. I was gonna say, you know how like the whites have the like giant bones around their oh, no, city? I don't think it's like dragon. Yeah. No. It could be, I guess. But I don't think so. 
<laughs> Either way. But she's in this study trying to think through everything that's going on. Some time has passed. I don't even it's, know if it's the same day. It, I, it's the same day. Is it the same day? Okay. I mean, I guess it doesn't say that, but it, it does she, skip a little bit of like intermediate story in between the two. Right. That but they talk about. But I think about how like she has invited Kefria to talk about the situation to her study. And I feel like it doesn't, that wouldn't have happened like a few days later, even the next day. Why wouldn't she just do it that night? Right. Yeah. Cause it is like midday whenever Sirwin comes. So she is thinking about that, uh, the situation and thinking through things. And she came up there to try to decide what Efren would have counseled her. And she had just decided that Efren would have shrugged his shoulders and delegated the problem back to her when she heard a tap at the heavy wood paneled door. Yes, she had expected Raish, but it was Kefria who entered. She wore a night robe and her heavy hair was braided and coiled as for sleep, but she carried a tray with a steaming pot and heavy mugs on it. Veronica smelled coffee and cinnamon. I had given up on your coming. Kefria didn't directly answer that. I decided that as long as I couldn't sleep, I might as well be really awake. Coffee? Actually, that would be good. This was the sort of peace they had found, mother and daughter. They talked past one another, asking no questions save regarding food or some other trifle. Kefria and Ronica both avoided anything that might lead to confrontation. Earlier, when Kefria had not come as invited, Ronica had assumed that was why. Bitterly, she had reflected that Kyle had taken both of her daughters from her, driven the one away, and walled the other up. But now she was here, and Ronico found herself suddenly determined to regain at least something of her daughter. As she took the heavy steaming mug from Kefria, she said, I was impressed by you today. Proud. Yeah, so it was today. I do want to just quick mention that Ronica is the one saying that the relationship they have right now is comfortable, even though they're just talking past each other and they're avoiding confrontation. I don't think but she I- says it's comfortable, does she? This is the sort of peace they had found. Yeah. He says then like they don't want to argue all the time. I thought that it was just like we're not seeing eye to eye, but we'll just talk to each other about trivialities to not butt heads. Right. But I guess I don't know. I think it's interesting that from Ronica's point of view that this is kind of okay. Like it's not ideal, but it's like fine and she's okay with it. But maybe it needs to change because Malta really needs to be stopped. And then we learn later that it was never okay on Kefria's end. Like Kefria has hated this relationship and has been kind of suffering through it. And I think it's really interesting how little Ronica knows of her family members. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like I'm kind of going really hard on Ronica this episode, this chapter. Oh yeah, just this one. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and like, I mean, I guess in general, but like, I like Ronica. I think she's a really strong woman and I think that she's doing a lot and I applaud her for keeping her head held high and doing what needs to be done to help her family. I just think that there are some things that she missed out along the way and it's really sad that she doesn't see that. But like you said, she compliments Kefria and says, I was proud of you today. And Kefria doesn't really take it the way I think Ronica was expecting her to. Kefria replies to her mother saying that she's proud of her by saying, Oh, I was too. 
I single-handedly triumphed in defeating the conniving plot of a sly 13-year-old girl. A rather hollow victory, mother. And Veronica kind of uses this moment to bond, to say, you know, I had two daughters. I know how sometimes a hollow victory is better than no victory. But Kefria is really dull, I guess, is what Robin Hobb uses as her descriptor here about her reply, basically saying, yeah, not over me. I was the model child. She had self-loathing in her tone as she added, I don't think I ever gave you and father a sleepless night. Never challenging anything you told me, keeping all the rules and earning the rewards of such virtue, or so I thought. You were my easy daughter, Ronica conceded. Perhaps because of that, I undervalued you, overlooked you. But in those days, Althea worried me so that I seldom had a moment to think of what was going right. Kefri exhaled sharply, and you didn't know half of what she was doing. As her sister, I... (sighs) But in all the years, it hasn't changed. She still worries us, both of us. When she was a little girl, her willfulness and naughtiness always made her papa's favorite. And now that he is gone, she has disappeared, and so managed to capture your heart as well, simply by being absent. Kefria, Ronica rebuked her for her heartless words. Her sister was missing, and all she could be was jealous of Ronica worrying about her. But after a moment, Ronica asked hesitantly, You truly feel that I give no thoughts to you simply because Althea is gone? So I do want to quick talk about before we get into Kefria's response to that, how Kefria and Veronica in this seem to think that Kefria did no wrong as a child. And I find that really interesting because at the beginning of this book, I'm pretty sure it's Veronica herself talking about how when she raised Kefria, Kefria refused to learn how to do things her mother's way. She didn't want to go out to the site on the field. She didn't want to learn how to do the books. She stomped and threw a fit and talked about wanting to be pretty for the balls instead. Mm, uh, Kind of. I I think Ronica was very forgiving of that because it was, I I seem to remember that it was Kefria tagged along with Ronica and did all that stuff until it was time for her to like start actually learning and going to the balls and dressing up and being concerned about it. So Ronica was like, and that was probably a right time to be concerned about looking pretty and stuff. So she was very apologetic or conciliatory towards that way. And like what Kefria was acting like. So it didn't seem like Ronica really faulted her for that, even though it's exactly what she faults her for as an adult now. Mm-hmm. When she was thinking back to when Kefri was a child, she's like, and yeah, even though she didn't want to go with me to the thing anymore, she was very concerned about going to the balls and that's fine. <laughs> it was really, right. it was really weird. Well, yeah, but I mean, in that way, is that really doing everything she's told and like being an easy child? You know what I mean? Like what I'm comparatively, trying to, I mean, <laughs> sure. But like. Her mother told her to do a thing and gave her rules and a set of guidelines and she decided she didn't want to do it and refused. And then her mom just said, "Okay, sure, because it fit into like society's view of what a woman should be, which is another problem. But still, it's so odd to me to like be like, yeah, you were my easy child and like her being like, I never did anything wrong. She didn't date a traitor. Like, I feel like that would have been crazy. Like, isn't that? 
all they want for Althea is for her to find a nice trader boy. So I assume that's what they wanted for Kefri at some point. And just because she still did things that were like within the scope of okay for a woman, it doesn't mean that she wasn't rebellious in her own way. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it's really weird to portray her as like, I was the perfect child and I listened to everything you said, mom. Yeah, you're right. You literally gave us examples of how she didn't do that growing up. (laughs) She didn't do it once. And then the decision was made. I feel like, I feel like in Ronica's mind, like, yeah, one thing, that's not bad. Everything else was perfect. I get, but I feel like, listen, (laughs) knowing who Malta is, I feel like she has her mother in her and that there was like some connivingness about that, about like, I don't maybe not. Maybe I'm just judging the tree by the apple, but it's, I don't know. I just feel like it's really weird you have to be. To remember, like, Malta also has the other tree true. influencing her. <laughs> true. But like, not just Kefria. I just feel like I hate this depiction of Kefria as being this perfect little angel and she did no wrong. Like, she also gave her 14 year old sister a belly button ring and told her she's a whore. She clearly wasn't an angel. I don't know. Like, maybe that's like. It was also after she had married Kyle for a while and had kids. So he had gotten to her with the depictions of women and probably bad mouthing things. Fair, but like still like that doesn't scream an innocent little angel woman to me. You know what I mean? I'm sure, you know, people who have very, very polite and proper with their parents around. Yeah. And then not. (laughs) They're not. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I, I totally believe it. Like I we're presented that that she was and it's a pretty core characteristic of Kefria that as a child, she wasn't she stuck to all the guidelines that she was supposed to. And that's why Ronica didn't bother with her at all. Didn't pay attention to her. And that's like where her feelings of inferiority comes from. Of like, I resent my sister because you guys didn't pay attention to me because I was perfect, but I was being perfect because you told me to. Like, I feel like that's where like her, her core jealousy comes from. Right. No, I agree. But I just like, I think to say that she was doing exactly what they asked her to do is not true. I just like fundamentally do not believe that she did everything exactly the way she said that she was a perfect angel child. And that like, like again, that stupid, like I mean, the Ronica, example, Ronica doesn't say that she was also the perfect child. She just says you were my easy daughter. Right. So. But I mean, but the way that she describes herself and seeing like, I, w- I never did anything wrong. I just, I don't know. Maybe that's what's rubbing me the wrong way is like the, well, you were easier. I don't know. Why maybe like, I mean, you had your own troubles. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like you want to dislike Kefria. No, I don't. <laughs> it just feels like a pretty bratty move to. Well, we know Kefria is a brat with how she interacts right. with Althea. Right. I just like, I don't know. She is a rude person who doesn't have great outlook on anything that is not the Chelsea traditional way of operating a household, except in rare occasions where she gets upset at her mom for taking over stuff that she, whatever we'll get into that. But anything outside the norm, she has a lot of vitriol for, which is all of Althea. And it's just, 
she's not the perfect person, but she could have been a model child and an easy child, obviously, for Ronica. Right. I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking like the whole deal where she like refused to do what her mom told her to do. Like her mom was trying to raise her to be the next head of the family. And she's like, I don't want to do that anymore. And her mom's like, okay. <laughs> I, like that whole situation is like, that's that also, that's also Ronica's fault too. True. I'm not saying it's not Ronica's yeah, fault. Yeah. I'm just saying, I don't think that that's like a sign that she was a perfect child. If she was willing to go against what her mom was asking her to do, like that's not following all the rules. That's, you know what I mean? That's what I'm trying. But I, I get what you're saying, but in Ronica's eyes, that's still following the rules because we, we, uh, we'll talk about it more. I and mean, you brought it up earlier. That is not fault as in blame, but that is Ronica's fault as in a, a character flaw. Right. That is Ronica wanting to take charge and maintain charge of everything because she can do it better until Kefria says, it's my turn now. I can do it better than you. And Kefria obviously never learned that because Ronica never taught her. Right. But for Kefria to be like, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. Ronica can still be like, yep, I do this better anyways. So I think that's kind of like combined flaws together (laughs) that in Ronica's mind, she still thinks, oh, yeah, you were the easy daughter. You just wanted to do the women's stuff, which, you know, I wanted you to be more a little bit more independent, but not Althea style. Right. (laughs) but I'm totally happy with you doing the women's stuff and I'll just run the household forever. (laughs) Right. No. Yeah, I guess you're right. I don't know. I just like, I don't know. I hate it. rubs me the wrong way that she thinks of herself as perfect. It feels very Malta to me. And I don't like Malta for thinking highly of herself either. I don't You know what? That sounds horrible. I love when women think highly of themselves. It's just for whatever reason, this family of women. (laughs) It's because they're obviously not perfect yeah of how they think they are that's fair <laughs> we we can see objectively their actions and their thoughts oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so kefria is here down on herself a bit and we get ronica saying you know or asking because this was kind of a thing that Ronica was surprised at Kefria that brought up that Kefria had brought up saying, you truly feel that I give no thoughts to you simply because Althea is gone. And this is Kefria's response here. You scarcely speak to me when I muddled the ledger books for what I had inherited. You simply took them back from me and did them yourself. You run the household as if I were not here. When Serwin showed up on the doorstep today, you charged directly into battle, only sending rage to tell me about it as an afterthought. Mother, were I to disappear as Althea had, I think the household would only run more smoothly. You are so capable of managing it all. She paused and her voice was almost choked as she added, You leave no room for me to matter. Ronica sits there kind of wordless. She And says she knows she's making excuses. But she says, I was always just waiting for you to take things over from me. And always so busy holding the reins that you had no time to teach me how. Here, give me that. It's easier if I just do it myself. How many times have you said that to me? Do you know how stupid and helpless it always made me feel? The anger in her voice was very old. No, Ronica said quietly. I didn't know that. But I should have. I really should have. And I am sorry, Kefria. Truly sorry. So we finally see some of the hurt that Kefria has been holding in. And... What we've been talking about, where Ronica 
doesn't teach her daughters anything. Right. She just expects them to be perfect at it. And if they're not, then she'll just do it. Yeah. Because it's got to get done. And, and she might as well do it if that's the best way to do it. And yeah, and there's no room for mistakes. They're, she's not letting them grow. And I think it's really interesting to have her say that her reasoning was she's just waiting for them to take over. And Kefria's rebuttal of, well, how are we supposed to do that if you never gave us a chance or taught us how? And that it's totally, looking back on the story, that's totally everything that Ronica has been doing. Yeah. You know, the part of the earlier earlier part of this chapter where she does immediately yep let's set up refreshments we'll do this we'll handle it with formality you know slight scolding but formality and oh yeah send for kefria too she'll come like it's so i will do everything and i have to do everything because it's all on my shoulders and i have to fix the mess that we got us in you know or i got us in efren you know i'll i'll fix the legacy it's never we can do it together because we're a family <laughs> and I have an adult in the household with me. Right. There is never this sense of like, I have to teach someone so they can get good enough to do it for me. It's a, I can't believe this person who's never done it before can't take it over. <laughs> yeah. And then also the previous uh, chapters we've had with Ronica, thinking of Kefria finally being a, like wakened up to Kefria being you know, not doing anything, only planning the household dinners for the week and things like that. And she's like, how did I never see this before? I thought Kefria was an adult person who could plan and do everything. Oh my gosh. I have to do even more now. Yeah. It's like, I, where, where are you in this, Monica? <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. And in this, I'm going to kind of go back on a little bit of how harsh I was earlier. Like I do really feel for Kefria in this moment. Like it's not fair that she had to grow up in a role where her parent didn't parent her. She scolded her. Like that's not fair. You can't expect a child to be perfect at everything. First try. Like they don't know you. That's your role as a guardian to teach them to be better, to teach them what to look for. And when they make a mistake to say, oh, this is a great learning experience. Let me show you how to fix that. And, and you can really see the the differences between Kefria and Althea now by knowing which parent raised which. Right. Because we have Ronica being like, oh my gosh, Althea is way too willful. But Kefria is just wants to be told what to do. And I'm sitting there like banging my head against the wall like, Ronica, you literally only told her what to do. Yeah. But not chores and things like that just like told her the rules that she had to follow and then took away any responsibility or teaching thing just like hey go be a woman follow these rules and then she did that and then she found a man who treated her the same right of just like because that's kind of how she was taught to be valued that was (laughs) the the ornament yeah be the perfect woman and then we see althea being raised with efren and efren is just like as we've talked about before, just kind of like lackadaisical as a, as a parent, but pretty insightful and wants the best for the children to do what they want. Like that wants them to follow their goals despite any social standings or anything like that. So Althea blindly chases that with no thoughts to anything else. Right. Like they're, they're great pair, great pair. If both of them were parenting together. Right. If they didn't have a, (laughs) like if, 
Efren didn't have a job where he was gone eight months out of the year and they could parent their children together, I'm sure their kids would have come out a lot more normal. (laughs) 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 But like, unfortunately, that's not what happened. And so we have Kefria who is in her 30s now trying to find what it means to be a woman. And she has had three kids and she has to figure that out on her own now. And Figure out a way to not repeat that mistake. And firmly set boundaries. Yes. But before we get into those boundaries, I do want to recall back to what you had said before mm-hmm. of how Ronica was okay with the situation where they were barely speaking yes. to each other. Where, yeah, we've settled kind of into a truce. You know, we just speak of formality, like trivial things like food and things. We talk at and past one another. And that's just kind of the piece we don't want to butt heads about Kyle or anything like that. We'll just go through it. I'll handle the business. And in Ronica's mind, that was fine. Right. And then Kefria starts out with, you barely speak to me. How could I not think that you don't care for me? Right. The way that this is said, I'm interpreting it that her mother used to talk with her more. I still don't think that there's a possibility that her mother was talking to her about in-depth things that mattered, quote unquote, when it comes to like taking care of the household. Right. But I think they did have a relationship where they were talking more than this. And now that Althea's gone, which is unfortunate timing, because I think even if Althea was there, Ronica probably would have avoided talking to Kefria because she's, not really sure how to handle Kefria being controlled by Kyle. Yeah, I think it's more the Kyle thing that's driving the wedge. Right. Like, which it's again, unfortunate timing. And that's why I feel like I'm reading this as you don't talk to me as like this is a new thing because of Althea, but she doesn't know mm-hmm. it's not because of Althea. Right. But also, she doesn't talk to her. <laughs> right. But also, Ronica, yeah, like should have. Instead of distancing herself from her daughter who has this horrible husband, she should have been there supporting her and talking to her. And and that's what Ronica said she was going to try to do in that yeah. room with Kyle, like saying, oh, now I need to do damage control. I need to wrest Kefria back away from Kyle. But it's been months and they're just talking past one another while Kefria tries to or while Ronica tries to fix everything. Right. Like, and it's yeah. not how you do that no that's not how adults talk to each other and i think it's hard too because like on the the one hand you can know because we have insight into both of their thought processes and what's going on on both sides you can really be sympathetic to both like ronica has a lot on her plate and yes she should have been giving kefria opportunities to help and take over long before now or even recently but she hasn't. And the reality of that is they have a lot of debts and it is coming down to the wire of, are we even going to be able to pay this? Yeah. And it's things that Kefria has still has not thought about. Right. And she, and she does acknowledge that Ronica runs this household extremely well. Right. Like probably be more smooth if Kefria wasn't there, which is probably not true, but also like a very sad thing to say about yourself. Yeah. But it, it, It's something that, like, Ronica is definitely needed. Definitely needed for this household to run well. She is superb at it. She's been doing it for years and years and years and is one of the only women in Bingtown who still does it. Right. And Kefria, yes, wants to be included. Never could be, so she can't fully get those skills from Ronica right now because it's like where they're in dire straits, but she can establish some boundaries, some guidelines where she's like, I am going to take charge of certain things now. 
Right. Like I, I have to assert my place in this household. Right. And I think, you know, what I, I think I most respect about this conversation is not once is it taken by Ronica or said in a way by Kefria that this is about the fact that technically Kefria is the owner of the house now. Right. Like, yeah, this that's is never, never it's never about Kefria having this power play of like, oh, I'm in control now. Kyle said so. It's like, which is a stark contrast to Kyle's conversations. Yes. yes. But instead, it's this beautiful, like, heart to heart moment between a mother and daughter of, listen, mom, you're not going to be around forever. And I can't wait for you to die to have to start. Like, yeah. I need to do this now while you're here. Yeah. And, and she says, I'm taking charge of Malta as the first step. Yeah. And I mean, like, I really respect that. Also, Part of me is like, okay, I don't think your mom would have tried to take control of Malta, but then maybe she would have. I don't know. Maybe if you lived your whole life with your mom taking every little problem. Ronica, like immediately in that conversation or when she was in her thoughts earlier in the chapter, she's like, I don't know if something can be done, but something needs to be done. Right. She's probably thinking about it. starting to think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so Kefri is here to set those boundaries saying I'm taking charge of Malta. Maybe you doubt that I can do it. I know I doubt it. But I know I'm going to try, and I wanted to ask you. No, I'm sorry. But I have to tell you this. Don't interfere. No matter how rocky or messy it gets, don't try to take it away from me because it's easier to do it yourself. Ronica was aghast. Kefria, I wouldn't. Kefria stared into the fire. Mother, you would. Without even knowing you were, just as you did today. I took what you had set up and handled it from there. But left to myself, I would not have even called Malta down at all. I would have told Sirwin and Della that she was out or busy or sick and sent them politely on their way without giving Malta the chance to simper and flirt. That might have been better, Ronica conceded in a low voice. Her daughter's words hurt. She had only been trying to think swiftly and handle things quickly to prevent a disaster. But although her daughter's words stung, she could also hear the truth of them. So she closed her lips tightly and took a sip of coffee. May I know what you plan? And Kefria here says, like, I scarcely know myself. She is so far gone. She has so little respect for me. I may not be able to do anything with her. But I have a few ideas of ways to begin. Starting with taking Rach away. She's going to have to earn her ability to learn etiquette and dancing and stuff like that through chores. Actual chores. And when she is given back under the care of Rach, it's going to be set up as normal lessons at a scheduled time and Rach is going to be treated with the same respect that Selden's tutor is is treated not whenever Malta is bored and wishes diversion basically like this is you have to earn learning how to be a woman by being diligent worker first and then respecting your teacher who is teaching you how to do these things right and she even mentions that if she misses a lesson then she will have to make up earning another spot for a lesson with more chores. Yeah. And says for the next thing, I am taking back my ledger books from you. I will not let Malta grow up as ignorant as I am. Malta is going to have to spend some time reconciling the ledgers every week. I know she will blot them and spoil pages and make mistakes and copy pages over. We will both have to endure that as will she. She will have to enter the numbers and tot them up. And she, we that is, We'll have to accompany you when you meet with the brokers and the tradesmen and the overseers. She needs to learn how the estates and trading accounts are handled. Ronica says nothing after Kefria pauses as if waiting for an objection. 
She will, of course, have to behave well at those times and dress as befits a girl who's becoming a woman. Not cheaply and suggestively, but not childishly either. She will need some new clothing. I intend that she shall share in the making of it, and that she will learn to prepare food and supervise the servants. Ronica's nodding gravely each time Kefria adds another task. And when she pauses, Ronica speaks and says, I think you make wise plans, and Malta can benefit greatly from what you propose to teach her. But I do not think she will come willingly to this. It is not fashionable at all for a woman to know how to do such things, let alone to actually do them. In fact, Bingtown now sees such behavior as plebeian. It will hurt her pride to do it. I doubt she will be a willing student. And Kefri is like, no, yeah, she is not going to be willing. And that's why I have yet another task. And she says, mother, I know you will not agree with this, which is contradicted by Ronica later saying, like, thank God this is happening. Yes. <laughs> or like in her mind, thank God this is happening. But Kefria is intending to take away the family credit from Malta. I will have to instruct the shopkeepers and tradesmen that they are no longer to extend her the family's credit. It will be humiliating to do, but she pauses if considering, yes, I will widen that to include Selden as well. I suppose it is not too early to begin with him. Perhaps I should never have allowed Malta to so easily have whatever she desired. So quick pause there, but we were talking about it a little bit before, but why wasn't Malta cut off before this? Doesn't she get receipts and stuff? I guess that's the reason. It's humiliating to have to cut your daughter off and be like, don't give them money. They can't right. spend it wisely. There's It's like they're not proper in how they do it. Or it's we don't have the money to spend. Right. Like that, that could be seen as that. Right. No, there's definitely that aspect of image and being worried about that. And we're chasing even just, away the creditors. Right. Even. Definitely. But also like, why does a 13 year old need a credit card? You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> Ronica says she's basically just buying toys and candy and <laughs> perfume anyway. Ronica, and it's like, <laughs> Ronica nods, expressing a heartfelt sigh of relief. <laughs> there is already on her desk a handful of chits with Malta's imprint of them for sweets and baubles and outrageously priced perfumes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> I don't know. And again, it's like, so they know how much she's been going to town. And okay. Also, this is like a side tangent, but it is so infuriating that Kyle was talking mad crap about Althea, just spending her daddy's money wherever she went, having not a single care in the world for her, the people who actually like Malta whatever. Malta here is doing the same. Yeah, Malta's literally doing worse. I mean, I guess I don't know worse is right, but like. Malta is doing the exact same thing <laughs> and he didn't have a thing where she wasn't allowed to spend she's money. She's favorite. Yeah, but still like, <laughs> oh, I can't. It's so like, I know that's such like a little gripe and it's so petty to be like, I can't believe Kyle. But, uh, like, <laughs> and then I think also what peeves me is that so he was telling Kefria and Kefria then tried to convince their mom that Althea doesn't just get to spend whatever money she wants so they were willing to be the embarrassment or have Althea be an embarrassment or embarrassed to like cut her off, but not Malta who is spending money they don't have. Are you right. kidding me? Ugh, so so Ron stupid. <laughs> Ronica is very relieved at that suggestion. Keeps it to herself though, but also reflects on it a little bit saying that it was another thing that Ronica had been unwilling to bring up to Kefria, Malta's casual spending that is. Now she honestly wondered why. She is your daughter, Ronica added, but I fear this will not be easy on any of us. And, she added unwillingly, 
there is yet another thing she must be taught about. Our contract with the Festru family. Kefra raised one eyebrow. But I am married, she pointed out. Veronica feels a sudden pang of sympathy, and she recalled how she had felt the first time she had realized that her growing daughters were now vulnerable to a bargain struck generations ago. That you are, she agreed quietly, and Althea is missing, and our debts grow fa- faster far than our credits. Kefria, you must recall the terms of the Vestrit bargain, blood or gold. Once Malta is presented to Bingtown as a woman, then she is forfeit to the Festrus if we do not have the gold to take to make the payment. And, she added unwillingly, at the midsummer, I was short. And she says, like, I promised to pay to make up for it and a large penalty on top of that. And if we don't have that, Kaolin Festru may invoke her right to claim blood from us. Althea, if she is found by then, Malta, if she is not. Rana could, could find no more words. She watched understanding and horror grow in Kefria's eyes, followed inevitably by anger. It is not fair. I never agreed to such a bargain. How can Malta be forfeit to a contract signed generations before she was born? It makes no sense. It isn't fair. Ronica gave her a moment or two. Then she said the words familiar to any traitor's daughter or son. It's traitor. Not fair, always. Not right, always. Sometimes not even understandable. But it's traitor. Why did we, what did we have when we came to the cursed shores? Only ourselves and the value of a man's word. Or a woman's. She goes on, basically, we pledged ourselves to each other. We pledged ourselves to the land and everything that came with it. And to all of the demands. And that, I imagine, is another topic you have not yet discussed with Malta. You should, and soon. For you know that she must have heard rumors. But she is only a child, Kefria pleaded, as if by agreeing with her, her mother could somehow change the fact that time had imposed on them. She is, Ronica carefully uh, agreed carefully, but only for a short time longer, and she must be prepared. So we get a little bit of foreshadowing there as well, because Althea will not be found by that time. Right. <laughs> and Malta is going to be betrothed to somebody who buys out the Festru's debt from them. Yeah, it's it's really hard because it really does go back to like even with Kefria wanting to make Malta have more responsibilities, have more I don't know, like more growth as a human being, unfortunately they've waited too long and now they kind of have to do it all at once. And there's a lot more adult stuff that they're going to have to talk to her about on top of all this. And because she doesn't have any sense of gravity and she's never had to deal with anything really, it's going to be hard for her to take it as seriously. I feel like it's. And Kefria has to come to grips with it as well. It's the same realization that Ronica had that, yeah, it's not just my problem. It's, the grandkids problem now. Right. Like it's all of the people in this family. Kefria has to confront that as well and be like, I'm married. They can't take blood. Oh wait, I have a daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really sad. It's, it's hard too, because part of me is kind of like, 
I don't know, just don't do it. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> I get, they don't try, they don't trade up the Rainwild Rivers anymore anyway. So, like, realistically, <laughs> <laughs> what's the worst that happens if they don't pay the creditor from Probably shunned the by Festrus. all of the rest of Bingtown. I traders. mean, maybe, or maybe they would be like, you know what? That's a good idea. We're also not paying you anymore. I don't know. It's stupid. It doesn't matter. And obviously not viable, but I do like, I do really feel for this sense of these are things that Kefria should have been warned about before now. Right. <laughs> and should have had time to process before it's a reality that's going to happen any second now because Malta thinks she's a woman at 13 and wants to be put on the market, like on the market for marriage. It's, I don't know. It's a lot. They both have to have the realization that they're not just the children anymore. They're future adults. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of setup and introspection in this chapter. We got a lot of foreshadowing about things to come. Malta actually being (laughs) married and the, not really the debt paid part of it, but cleared because of Malta <laughs> right. being promised into a Rainwild family. And then uh, Wintrow kind of being set up for foreshadowing as well. Something bad happening in Jamalia where, and, and him at his tilting point. Right. So, yeah. Interesting chapter. I think we have Kenneth next. So yeah. little little break from Malta. <laughs> I definitely need it. Every time I read a Malta chapter, I just get frustrated. I guess like most of the characters, when I read them at this point, I'm like, and we still Malta for like half a page in this chapter, but still, it, it's a Malta chapter. <laughs> it's all about Malta and her poor decisions. So, I mean, overall, I I don't hate this chapter. I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. For the characters to realize all the things they're doing wrong. It kind of feels like a vindication as a reader because I've been so mad at Kefria and Ronica not doing very good jobs in parent roles and they have to kind of confront that in this chapter. And I really appreciate the way that they do it and the way that they both admit that they have done, made mistakes. Like yeah. I don't think it's, it's well-written conversation. It is. And it, and it, and it feels like a good start to mending the relationship. It feels like a good way that like there's respect and that they are moving forward and trying to right the wrongs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you have any thoughts or theories, maybe more about live ships and dragons and things like that, mm-hmm. or anything about Malta please let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us directly or comment on any of our posts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or underneath the videos on YouTube. Where it is fits happy on all of those. Thanks so much. See you next week. We wish you a happy new year. We wish you a happy new year. (laughs) We wish you a happy new year. And here's more quick talks. (laughs) Okay. Nope. That was. Didn't work well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, (laughs) happy new year. And also, um, we're going to talk about some stuff that people sent in to us. Just one thing, I think. Just one thing, yeah. Um, We actually got two different people sending in some information to us about crimpers 
And how crimpers is not the actual term, but it is a term in the real world. Yes. The crimp or to crimp someone is a term. And it's when you coerce someone into becoming a a sailor or a soldier against their will. Yeah. So. So they're called crimps and that's for crimping someone or shanghaiing someone. So. So Really interesting. So thank you to Amir and Bastion for letting us know about the real world. (laughs) Um, meanings of the word and for letting us know it is a real word. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always fun whenever there's words that we don't know and they're used correctly. I would assume they'd be used correctly though. I mean, I'm sure an editor wouldn't let that slip by. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just depends on whether it was a fantasy word or actual real life. So. Yeah. So thank you guys. And that's kind of the only thing we are going to talk about for, as for people, things people have sent in to us. Thanks so much for all of your well wishes in the new year and holidays. Hope you guys had great holidays as well. Yeah, we definitely had fun. Um, It's nice to, you know, spend time with loved ones. Yeah. And whether they're your biological family or your found family, always good to spend time Mm -hmm. with people that you care about. We made it to 2023. We did it. Who would have thunk? Last year, I think I had a resolution to read the whole Realm of the Edelings series again ahead of our podcast, and I did not do that. <laughs> I think I, I went ahead in Assassin's Quest and started reading Ship of... Uh, no, I took a break and started Ship of Magic with the podcast, and I just haven't <laughs> kept up with it after. So Yeah, I... I still love Robin Hobb and these books, but I'm kind of hobbed out. Like, I don't... I feel bad. I don't want to. Re- <laughs> I don't want to read them for pleasure right now, just yeah. because we're into. Because <laughs> then I like think about the work side of it too much. I'm like, oh, I should probably take a mental note of this, or like do this, and like what? And I'm like, no, I'm thinking about it too hard. I'm not enjoying it anymore. <laughs> so I don't know if I'll be able to leisurely read this series until after we're done. <laughs> like it'll be 84 years from now. <laughs> We have started reading a little bit more recreationally near the end of this year, though. Yeah, no, definitely. I started rereading Wheel of Time. Yes. And a couple other books in between that. But you've uh, went to the library a few times, found a couple other series. So. Yeah, I've been burning through young adult fiction per usual. It's nice to get back <laughs> in the swing of reading um, something that isn't as serious as <laughs> this yeah, series. that's fair. But no, it's been um, it's been fun. Do you have any uh, resolutions for yourself for in terms of the podcast for this yeah. next year? <laughs> um, well, considering I also failed at my resolutions last year for this podcast, I don't know. I guess just trying to keep being better every day. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to get ahead in our recording. I say that I think once a month at least, mm-hmm. but I want to have a few in the bank just so we don't have to skip as many. And besides, we're we're going through this book pretty slow. At we, long chapters, almost all of these episodes are about two hours. It's yeah. it's a lot to process and go through. So yeah, I just want to try to get a little bit a little bit ahead there, so we can keep cranking them out on a reg- regular schedule for you guys. Uh, let me see. Oh, that kind of ties in. I kind of want to make the episode shorter, but like. It's hard to do that because there's so much information that we're talking about. Yeah, it's re- the way we've formatted this makes it harder. 
I think I just read too much. Yeah. I read a lot. But I, I like I, I th- see, I feel like reading sections gets the point across more than just explaining what the sections are, depending on what it is. See, and I was an English major in college and had to not do that. So (laughs) I had to use words instead of quotes. Um, So I find it more efficient to not do that. But I do also, it is hard because there are some things, well, a lot of things that are written that are really well-written and the way that Hobbes says it is so potent or. Yeah. And words, words are very important in the choices that she does use sometimes. So like. I can't really get away from reading at all. <laughs> yeah. Which I wouldn't want to. I like no, reading definitely. excerpts from the books, but yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll work on a new format. <laughs> uh, maybe. that's That, that <laughs> feels like another resolution that's not going to happen, but. You never know. We'll, we'll try to. Resolutions are made to be broken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, if you guys have any book resolutions for the year, feel free to send them in. It's always fun to see. And remember, you don't have to reach a certain number of books every year. It's great to have a goal. It's great to reach that goal. It's great to exceed it. But it is totally fine if you go under it because at the end of the day, you're still reading. Yeah. And life is hard sometimes to get time in and life is hard always life is always yeah (laughs) life is always hard but like I feel like sometimes people shame people they're like oh you're on your phone at the end of the day for like an hour or whatever and that could be time spent doing something more meaningful or whatever and like sure maybe but like sometimes you just need an hour on the phone to decompress and I don't think we should feel bad about needing that like (laughs) (laughs) so I think it's always good to make sure that you're not pushing yourself so hard towards a goal that you lose sight of the joy of what the goal was supposed to bring. And if that means that you don't hit it, you're still working towards it. Like it's, I don't know. It's all good. Same with all the other resolutions too. As long as you're kind of working towards it, you're doing a great job. Sometimes baby steps are enough, you Mm -hmm. know, still get there in the end. So thanks so much for sticking with us another year. Yeah. It's been lovely to be part of this group. This, our growing little family. Yeah. And, you know, it's still strange. I feel like we're all, I mean, besides Luke and I, we're all strangers. <laughs> and yet I like, we recognize names of people and it feels like a community. And I always feel like you guys are friends. Anytime anybody reaches out, I'm like, oh, a friend reached out. And um, it's like funny because like, obviously I've never met any of you in real life, but I do really appreciate the time that you guys give us because like Luke said, our podcasts have been getting longer and longer and you guys give us that part of your time, which can never be given back. And that's really valuable in today's day and age. And I think that's really cool that you guys Mm -hmm. do that for us. Can you imagine, or can you even think that it's going to be three years in March? No, that is. We've been doing this. So many years. That's yeah. <laughs> also, I love how I was just thinking before the pod about how I think like when we first started, people were like, we want to see more pictures of you guys. And we're like, don't worry, we'll post pictures of ourselves all the time. And this was like the third picture we've ever posted of ourselves was like for New Year's, the annual Christmas picture. <laughs> hey, that's fine. They come to hear. Our thoughts for some reason, Definitely. not see our faces. That's yeah, that's true. It's and even not, probably not to hear our voices. Just, yeah, <laughs> just to just to have a person to argue with on the internet. Yep. Which honestly, <laughs> I love that. I love being a faceless 
person on the internet that people can not faceless anymore. No, not faceless, Uh. but it's, (laughs) it's just very fun. And we're really glad to have you guys with us and join us on our journey. And we're always thankful for the thoughts that you guys send us and the kind messages. And we're really glad to have cultivated this really nice space where we can all come together and just geek up a geek out about a niche book series. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. Yeah. See you next week.